I'm heading north along the California coast. I just passed over Ortonville, where the 33 joins up with the 101. And remarkably, there were cars. Cars turning onto the 101 and going south. Obviously, they're ignorant about what's going on in Los Angeles. They must have forgotten to watch the YouTube before getting into their vehicles. If only there was some way I could warn them. Ever since my encounter with that soldier from the supply plane, I've felt nothing but love for the people beneath me. I know it sounds ridiculous to even say the word out loud, but it's true. All the loathing, all the hatred, all the disgust that I've been nurturing and cultivating for the past 10 years, it's gone, evaporated, overnight. And you have to realize that in my travels, there's no single place I hate more than Los Angeles. For years, I've been fantasizing about its destruction. Earthquakes, tsunamis, giant nuclear beetles. But this morning, when the city was engulfed, by violence and terror, I wept. As far as I could tell, the root of the problem was a section of the 405 that they closed down for construction. Sure, a couple of guys in hard hats pretended to dig some holes with a jackhammer, but that was just for show. There was no construction. The whole crew was hanging out in the trailers, playing video games, and drinking iced tea. But they went too far. They closed down too many exits. And as the sun came up, traffic was reduced to a crawl. And by 9 a.m., the entire city had stopped in its tracks. I could feel the road rage cooking the underside of my gondola. Not a single car was moving. As far as I could see in every direction, not a single car was moving. And then, a woman kicked open the door of her minivan and with a frustrated growl, launched herself at the sports utility vehicle in front of her. Like a mad dog, she gnawed at the brake lights with her teeth until a man in a business suit got out of the passenger side and started clubbing her with a supersized bottle of green fluorescent water. And then... All hell broke loose. I don't know if you're familiar with the paintings of Hieronymus Bosch, but his visions of the apocalypse have always haunted me. The fantastic creatures, the fire and the blood. It was like he was able to see directly into the heart of Hades. But I realize now, he was having visions of Los Angeles. Men and women and children, they all win at each other with an energy I didn't know existed on the West Coast. They beat and battered each other with tire irons and steering wheel locks. And when they ran out of blunt instruments, they used their fists and their bodies. This giant obese man climbed up on top of his truck and belly flopped onto the roof of a small compact in the lane besides him, crushing and killing everyone inside. And he tried to do it again to the car on the other side of his truck. But a woman garroted him with an iPod cable. The smart ones tried to escape. I saw a man tear the shirt off his back and the muffler off his car and bare-chested attempt to hack his way off the highway. But he barely made it a hundred meters. A busload of prep school kids armed with windshield wipers also tried to slash their way out, but they were mowed down by a group of shrieking soccer moms who had tasers. As the bodies piled up, and the cars exploded, I shouted at the top of my lungs. But no one paid me any mind, and Carmageddon continued. I come from a long line of walkers. At least that's what my father always used to tell me. Whenever I would ask him why we didn't own a car, he would tell me that walking was my blood right, my heritage, something that distinguished me from all the Philistines and fools who drove around in pickup trucks and hatchbacks. He had this story that my great-great-great-grandfather was the first man who walked from Russia to America over the ice bridge. Of course, I knew he was totally full of it, 
Even though I was only seven years old, I knew that he was lying. When he married my mother, her family gave him a car. But in less than two years, he ran it into the ground. He never put any oil in it. He never took it in for a checkup. He never even bothered to clean it. And one day, it died. Supposedly, he was on his way to an important meeting, a life-changing meeting. And because of the dead car, he missed it. Supposedly, he just took all his stuff out of the trunk and walked away. But who knows how much of that story is even true. This not having a car, though, it really traumatized me. When I was little, it felt like it was a sign of how dysfunctional my family was, how unnormal we were. I just didn't understand how everyone in the neighborhood could have a car except for us. Even the woman across the street with the five kids and the husband in jail, she had a car. It just didn't make any sense. It was like we were cursed. When I was in the second grade, I started clipping the car ads out of the newspaper. And at night, I would take them out and hold them underneath my Kermit the Frog nightlight and I'd go over the options. Power windows, pleather upholstery, corrosion-proof paint, mud flaps. When my father decided that I was old enough to start helping him carry home the Saturday night groceries, I put up such a fight that in the end, he decided it was less of a hassle to just carry home the eight bags himself. I'd feel guilty, of course, watching him struggle with the bags as he walked up the driveway, his hands all red from the plastic handles. But there was no way in hell that I was going to walk down Hampton Avenue with my father carrying groceries. I mean, what if someone from my school saw me? Then they would know. They would know that I was not a normal American, but a walker. The lengths I went to keep my family's vehicular status a secret from the neighborhood kids was truly quite remarkable. I convinced every kid on my block that my father not only had the most awesome car ever, but that it was continually in the shop as well. And I kept this up for years. Sometimes I would draw it in art class. Sometimes I'd tell stories about it when we sat in the sharing circle after lunch. But most of the time... I just daydreamed about it. It was never anything fancy, never a Mercedes or a BMW, just a simple, average American family car. A Ford, a Buick, a Chrysler. My mother was never happy being a walker, but she never bothered to get a driver's license either. When she was young, there was always a driver to pick her up from school to take her to her swimming lessons. And when I was growing up, the only place she wanted to go was church. And there were buses for that. Every Sunday it was torture. My sister and my mother and I would walk down to the Happy Canyon Plaza and wait for the bus. At first it was just one bus, the number 40. That bus went down Colorado Boulevard, and most denominations had a church on Colorado Boulevard. So when we were Lutheran, Baptist, Episcopalian, we only had to take one bus. But then, around the time I started the third grade, she decided that we were going to be Catholic, which meant two buses, the number 40, and then a transfer to the number 65 at Monaco Crossing. Now, lots of people from my school lived around Monaco Crossing. And so every Sunday, as we waited for the bus, I'd position myself slightly behind the telephone pole so I couldn't be seen by oncoming traffic. The idea that one of my classmates might drive by and from the back seat of their family car see me standing there waiting at a bus stop with my mother and my sister was too much to bear. And then, one Sunday... It happened. As I stood there cowering behind the telephone pole, I saw a car drive by with Brian Hoffman in the passenger seat. He was popular and his father was a police officer. I was certain that he saw me. And all through mass, all I could think about was his fat, fleshy face gleefully mocking me. So when I got home that afternoon, 
I looked up Hoffman in the phone book and I called every single one of them until I found him. I delicately fished around to find out if he'd seen me, but before I could get anywhere, he called me a nerd and told me never to call him again. Like I said, he was popular. When I turned 12, my mother decided that we'd start going to church on Saturdays and Sundays. This was too much, and I rebelled. I told her that I was done. This was before they took over. It was still legal to reject Jesus as your personal savior. But back then, when I told my mother this, she fell apart, and she became convinced that I was possessed by Satan. And in order to protect my sister, she took off. She divorced my father and took off. I never got to tell her that it had nothing to do with Jesus. I never got to tell her that I just wanted us to drive to church in a car like a normal American family. When I turned 21, I finally got a car. I was working at this used bookstore. This was before they made used bookstores illegal. And one day, this old guy came in to sell all of his old books because he was going blind and he didn't have any health insurance. And as he was leaving, he said, I also have a car to get rid of. Do you know anyone who wants a free car? Immediately, I started driving everywhere. I drove to my job at the used bookstore, I drove to the flea markets, I drove to the liquor store, I even drove to the Salvation Army that was technically at the end of the parking lot of the housing project I lived in. That's actually where I first discovered Big Ass Magazine. One afternoon, I found a whole stack of them. Someone had carefully wrapped each one individually in a Mylar bag in order to keep the pictures from yellowing with age. I wasn't a very good driver, though. For some reason, I hit everything. I hit parked cars, I hit telephone poles, I hit newspaper boxes. I even hit this high school girl who lived in my building. And I had to drive around with her for hours until her foot stopped bleeding. And she promised not to turn me into the police or her parents. And then, one night, as I was driving to a party, smoke started coming out of the steering wheel. I pulled over and opened up the hood. The engine was on fire. I knocked on the door of a nearby house and asked if I could use the phone. But this old lady just slammed the door in my face. I didn't know what to do. So I just stood there and watched as my car burned. It was like an old mafia movie. A fireball lifted my car off the ground. Eventually, the fire department showed up, and they sprayed this white foam all over the wreckage. For some reason, they all thought it was really funny. And then I realized one of the firemen was Brian Hoffman. He winked at me and made walking motions with his fingers while everyone laughed. I never got another car. I just passed over the Emma Wood State Park. I've done this leg of the journey a countless number of times now, so I know exactly where I'm going. My craft is programmed to follow the California coast all the way to the Redwood National Forest, and then we'll head northeast into Oregon. For some reason, I keep weeping. Perhaps it's the ocean, or perhaps it's the scene I witnessed in Los Angeles. Or perhaps it's the woman below, the one wearing the polka dot dress, riding the mountain bike. But it's been an emotional couple of weeks. My craft got stuck over Boston. Then I had that encounter with the soldier. And then, this morning, I witnessed Carmageddon. I don't think I want to be up here anymore. 
I would like to come down, but I can't. When they sentenced me, the judge made a point of saying that there was no hope of parole, no chance of a reduced sentence for good behavior. He said that since I had cursed America, I would never again be allowed to return. You know, it's strange, me being a political prisoner, because before all this mess happened, I don't think I ever had a political thought in my life. I mean, sure, I was bummed out every time they made another thing illegal, and sure, it bothered me to see the stupid and the evil ruin everything, but I just was never really into politics. But before all this is over, I feel I should at least say, you know, one thing that's political. So I'm going to share with you now my political philosophy. Now, it is a bit light. You might find it even a bit silly. I've actually never told anyone about it. But here goes. After my car blew up, I got a bicycle. And this changed everything for me. I wouldn't say I, I turned into one of those bike nuts. I was never able to ride fast enough to hang out with them, but I did take my bike everywhere. I took it to school, I took it to work, I even took it to the mall once. I thought it would help me meet girls. It didn't, but over the years, I've come to realize that the bike is the answer to all our nation's problems. It's economical, it's environmental, and it's fun. I told you it was a stupid political theory. But what did you expect to get from a guy living out the rest of his days in a hot air balloon? When I was 19, I went on this massive 81-day uh, road trip around the country uh, that was the, the most glorious experience uh, in the world. When Gene Atwood graduated from his Boston-area high school, he didn't want to get a job. He wanted no part of mainstream America. He was determined to find a way, any way, to live his life on the road and off the grid. You know, my parents were definitely, uh, you know, straight up hippies from the 1960s. Like my dad went to Woodstock. They'd sort of taught me about hippie culture and stuff. Or I don't know, maybe they didn't teach me about it. Maybe PBS taught me about it. But it's something that somehow is like in my childhood development. I sort of saw the classic American road trip as the only real acceptable way of life. And I, I thought I had it all figured out that I could just continually travel and somehow magically everything would come together. I met this, this couple in Oregon that was traveling around the U.S. in a, uh, an old 1960s Volkswagen bus. And the guy had written a mystery novel, a really crappy mystery novel by his own admission. But he was living off of the small amount of royalties, which ended up being about $500 a month to just perpetually travel around the uh, the country with his girlfriend in this Volkswagen bus writing his next book. And for some reason, I always envisioned myself doing that exact thing, but I never actually managed to do it. I, I, I had never moved out of my parents' house. I didn't have a job. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I was just in my mom's basement, internet nerding uh, throughout all hours of the day and night. And... Uh, that's when I started looking at property on eBay. eBay had a real estate section, and in that real estate section was a land section. 
and uh, organized by price, I could I was able to see that there was land in an area of Texas in the desert in Lobo Valley uh, that was selling for very cheap. I actually saw one listing that was different from the others and that it was ending at three in the morning instead of all of the other auctions that were ending at normal kind of prime time times. And so I saw that 3 a.m. listing as an opportunity um, and I, I bid on it and I bid $550 on it and uh, I ended up getting it. I got 5.152 acres of property in the middle of the desert, 20 miles from the nearest town, four miles from the nearest ghost town for $550 plus $100 uh, uh, like real estate fee or something. Uh, that got me motivated to you know get out of my funk and start working so that I could eventually build my lifelong dream, Fort Awesome. It took Gene Atwood a few years to save up enough money to get out of his mother's basement. But on April 1st, 2010, he did it, and he set out for Fort Awesome to fulfill his destiny to live free. So many other people have done it that it uh, made sense that, uh, you know, we should do it. Gene convinced three friends to join him. Chopper, Mariah, who's a guy, not a girl, and my uh, now ex-girlfriend, Haley. Those were the three, the three people who came with me. Gene's property was exactly what he dreamed it would be, a beautiful parcel of isolated Texas desert. But it takes more than dreams to raise a fort. It turned out that my property is part of just a sea of land uh, that's probably 100,000 acres or so. Uh, we tried to survey it, but it turns out that just lining up uh, maps with Google Earth, getting like an $80 GPS uh, unit does not a surveyor make you, but we set up a shade tent and we set up our little makeshift uh, kitchen. We set up our sleeping tents and we just, uh, uh, we brought some beer in and we just sat around drinking beer and we're just like, yep, we're here. This is awesome. Uh, basically all we did was drink uh, beer all day watched uh, Dust Devils and, and Chainsmoked and sang songs. We, we read to each other. Uh, we read out loud uh, entire chapters of um, Lonesome Dove, which the landscape would remind you of. It was really just um, as glorious as you could imagine anything being, uh, really. It was overpowering. I think a description of how we of how we were and what we did out there was more like we were just like weird desert sages that lived out of tent and uh, ate beans out of the can for three months. It was it was it was incredible. Uh, the problem was we didn't have enough money. Uh, we we had sort of imagined that we would get down there and that everything would sort of magically fall into place, but. It definitely doesn't work like that. Um, me and Chopper had started working on a science fiction novel, but I feel like I just ended up uh, thinking more than actually doing any sort of productive action. One day, I came to the realization that we were getting to a point where if we continued for much longer, we wouldn't have enough money to be able to leave, which is not really uh, the best situation to be in. And we decided we needed to end it. Gene is now living about 80 miles away from his property in Alpine, Texas. He still plans to go back and build Fort Awesome. You can track his progress on his website, texaracas.com. He's also using the internet to raise money and awareness about his cause. But not all the press has been helpful. In March of 2010, the Boston Globe wrote an article that claimed Gene and his crew were trust fund kids. 
and that he had purchased his new country with his mom's credit card. And so my friend had posted that uh, Boston Globe article to something, the Something Awful forums, and uh, they picked up on it. And so part of the narrative of this whole story involves every time we go on the internet, uh, just seeing like weird hate comments against us from Something Awful forum people which was that sometimes funny, but sometimes it was just kind of depressing when you're standing up on top of a truck with your phone to access the internet through the 3G signal that kind of wafts in and out of the area, and uh, all you have are weird hate messages. I was always really, really passionate about freedom and, and, and always getting into arguments with people about what the right way to live was. I just, I, I really hated living in a society that wasn't built according to my philosophy. I mean, I don't begrudge it to the people who like it, but it's, it's just not right for me. Like many libertarians, Padre Friedman spent a lot of time arguing about politics. But one day, he says, he got sick and tired about talking he wanted to do something that would make his utopian ideals real. And so he turned to the entrepreneurial startup culture of Silicon Valley. I guess b being an ambitious young guy, rather than just saying, okay, I'm going to be miserable forever, I said, I'm gonna, all right, I'm going to go research whether there's any possible way to change this, to create societies that I would like. And if we could let people experiment with whatever they think their utopia is, then even if many of them are wrong, even if I'm wrong, we're going to find better ways to live together. And this was more than just me getting what I want, but actually a way to unleash the innovation that we see in technology and in startups on politics. Like Gene Atwood, Padre Friedman is aware that the history of micronations, or new countries, reads as one long comic narrative of failure. But Friedman is convinced that his entrepreneurial ideals will bring him success. Friedman is the CEO of his own company. He's got a business plan and an investment strategy. And he's already raised over a million dollars. His vision? Autonomous city-states on the ocean. The ocean is just, it's, it's bigger and it's a solution that, that has much larger scale. New political experiments require kind of a, a, a blank canvas on which to work. Uh, but all land is claimed. Even the smallest rock in the world extends fishing and mineral rights out in a 200-mile circle. So if we can figure out how to build these floating cities, then 68% of the Earth's surface can become a laboratory for testing new societies and new ways to live. It will be at least 10 years before seasteading has habitable structures on the ocean. But you can read all about them on their website, seasteading.org. And there are pictures. At the beginning, it'll be just like a small cruise ship, but dedicated to a specific business like a hospital or to a small residential community that travels from place to place or just lives in one place offshore. Then over time, it's going to transition to something more like an oil rig where you have these narrow pillars that the waves wash through and they have flotation deep under the water and they hold a platform way above the water. And that platform is the foundation on which the buildings are based. So then we build this kind of grid. It's like city blocks, but each city block is this kind of oil platform connected to another one. We build that over time and that's what seasteads look like for probably 7 to 15 years from now. 
And at some point, it gets big enough that instead of having every city block have these pillars, we build a giant wall around the entire city that stops the waves. And then inside, we have a lagoon. It's like an artificial atoll where instead of this old you know, volcano, we have this built cement wall around the outside. And then everything's just floating in the calm waters inside. And this will let you do some incredible things like if you're having you know, a big event like a wedding, you could rent an extra backyard and actually have it towed up and attached to your backyard. Or you could live in one part of town, then maybe you have kids, or maybe your kids leave the house, and you actually move your house to a different part of town. So it's like the, the, this di dynamic society that we want to create, the ocean actually supports it by its different nature. Padre Friedman says that his city-states will enable individuals to experiment with many types of government like the opt-in dictatorship. People focus a lot on, on voice when it comes to politics, when really choice is more powerful. You know, if you look at what is a dictatorship, it's a system that gets forced on people and they can't leave. That's what happened in, you know, communist East Berlin, is the people were forced into that system and they built a wall so they couldn't leave. But there's a sense in which every business is a dictatorship, right? I don't get to tell Steve Jobs how to build a MacBook Air. I don't get to tell Starbucks how to make coffee. But... I love Starbucks coffee and I love my MacBook Air. They do a great job of making a product that serves me because of my choice. I don't have voice, but I can choose, you know, what laptop I want to buy and I can keep re-choosing regularly. So I think if, if we bring that to government, we have a society that's opt-in. You only go there if you've gone and researched it, you've read what their rules are, what their courts are like, and you've said, okay, this is good for me. And I think you also have to be able to leave. And that's one of the neat things about the ocean is we may actually be able to detach houses and move them from floating city to floating city so that, you know, unlike in the old company town where it was not only your home but your job was there and was completely dependent on them so you didn't have the option to leave if you didn't like it. We want to make it as easy as possible for people to switch because that's where we'll get the competition and that's where we'll get the innovation. No one is yet to make a down payment on one of C-Setting's modular condos, but Padre Friedman believes that a new country free from America's troubles and regulations, is a very sellable product. I think this is a great time for this kind of project because what we're seeing is 20th century governments are kind of falling apart in the 21st century. I mean, if you look at, if you look at the debt and, you know, the pension time bomb and Social Security and most of all Medicare in the U.S., as well as the sovereign debt crises in Europe, we're really seeing this decay that economists predicted would happen in democracies over decades is really happening. And so a lot of people are interested in alternatives. Padre Friedman likes to cite his grandfather, the Nobel Prize-winning Milton Friedman, in support of his beliefs that democratic capitalism is collapsing. While he and his grandfather do have a lot in common, there is a key difference. My grandfather was all about just having great ideas and arguing really compellingly for them, and the idea that you, you change the world through spreading ideas. But I think I also have a lot more, a lot more desire to not just talk about it but live it I want to. I want to. I want to be out there living it, and so talking and 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 thinking is not enough. I mean, only if they're in service of of getting it done. Padre Friedman says that seasteading attracts the doer personality, the kind of person who used to live on the American frontier, people we once knew as pioneers. I think opening a new frontier is, is absolutely central to seasteading. And the most common element in people attracted to seasteading right now is the pioneering personality. People who want to, you know, they're willing to deal with, with the difficulties and newness and complexity of, of a new empty place in order to go something new. In fact, they thrive on that complexity and that, and that exploring the open space. We think of ourselves sort of as, as more American than America today in the sense that we're more like 19th century America seeing possibility in new places. And America's kind of lost that. And I get really frustrated when people say, oh, so instead of fixing the system here, you guys are going to leave and make a new system? That's so un-American. Like, where do you think this country came from? It came from people who, instead of fixing Europe, went to a, went to a new place and did something new. And that example helped influence the world. Having new places to do new things, having frontiers, is how we get innovation in, in, in social and political systems.
The American writer Edward Everett Hale first published his story, The Man Without a Country, in the pages of The Atlantic in December 1863. He didn't sign his name, he just wrote anonymous. He did this because he wanted to fool the audience with his historical fiction. The Man Without a Country tells the story of an army lieutenant named Philip Nolan, who, in his youth, got caught up in one of Aaron Burr's plots. When he was tried for treason, he cursed America. The judge sentenced him to live out the rest of his life consigned to a U.S. Navy ship, never to set foot or eyes on his native land. And this sentence was carried out, to the letter. In the story we learn, the man without a country proved his courage and his patriotism on many occasions, and gained the respect of all he traveled with. Many Navy officers tried to win his release, including the author of the story, who tells us he once sailed with Philip Nolan early in his career. But the man without a country never regained his freedom. He paid for his youthful sin with his life. The story was a hit. The man without a country was just what America needed in the late 1860s, as the nation emerged from the horrors of the Civil War. And to capitalize on his fame and royalties, Edward Everett Hale announced to the world that he was the author of The Man Without a Country. He sold the rights to the story to a number of early silent film pioneers. In 1917, there were two versions released, one directed by D.W. Griffith and the other by Ernest C. Ward. Even though Griffith was at the height of his career, it was the Ward version that captured the attention of the American people. This was because the film starred Florence Labidi, one of the industry's first superstars. Tragically, on the way to the film's premiere, she got into a car accident, and she died from her injuries. Many film historians credit the success of her last film to the American public's desire to see the dead woman on the big screen. But Griffith was so incensed by the lack of attention his version got that he burned all the prints. On May 12, 1937, the Man Without a Country opera premiered at the Met. The music was composed by Walter Damrosch. The, the opera was not a hit and has not been performed since. In many adaptations of The Man Without a Country, creative liberties are taken with the story. In the television series that aired briefly on ABC in 1972, Philip Nolan became a West Point dropout who wandered back and forth across America, one step away from the authorities who wanted to try him for treason. In every episode, he would get involved with someone who was on the verge of committing an act of treason or doing something un-American, and he would intervene. Johnny, Johnny, listen to me. You gotta listen to me, man. I may be a man without a country, but you still have a choice. Put that assault rifle down. Disband your mountain militia before, before it's too late. The most bizarre rendition of Edward Everett Hale's story is, without question, the 1977 XXX movie supposedly made by Henry Paris. In this version, traitor Philip Nolan is living out his sentence alone on a deserted island, a man without a country. Until one day, a ship carrying 50 women washes up on the shore. The women are all state finalists for the Miss America pageant. Virginia. North Carolina, Montana, Texas. The Man Without a Country has been remade countless times. We now have books, comic strips, radio plays, movies, television shows, operas. And in 2006, a video game was even produced. 
But every version of The Man Without a Country shares the same ending. For there is only one way the story can end. Even in death, our hero is a man without a country. And thus, his final resting place can only be a cold and watery grave. Jesus once turned water into wine, but the scriptures do not tell us what kind of wine it was. Some theologians have made the case that Jesus being holy would never turn water into an intoxicating beverage, so therefore his wine was most certainly of a non-alcoholic variety. But Jesus was at a wedding. He was trying to win followers and impress people. He had a religious vision to push. It was not the time or place for grape juice. I'm sure the wine that Jesus made was of the highest quality. And I'm sure that many of the men and women at that wedding dreamed about that wine for the rest of their days. I'm trying to make wine myself. A few weeks ago, I made an accidental discovery One morning I awoke and found that I had unfortunately spilled the contents of one of my bread machine packets, a whole wheat mix, onto the floor of my gondola. The night before there had been no moon, and in the dark I had missed the bread machine entirely. I scraped up what I could from the floorboards and put it back into the machine. I added some more yeast and some more water, and I put the machine on another cycle. But a few hours later, when I opened the machine, I discovered a strange smelling liquid. It was a miracle. I had turned bread into wine. And I'm getting better at it. With every batch, I'm getting better. Tonight, there is a full moon. I can see the waves crashing on the beach. From my perspective, or maybe it's just the bread wine, the ocean looks like it's nurturing and cultivating the vineyards of the Sonoma Coast. Jack London wrote about this place in his novel, The Valley of the Moon. This is the book where he began to question his liberal and socialist beliefs. His protagonists, Billy and Saxon, go on an epic road trip. Fed up with the corruptions of modern life, they flee the city and travel around the countryside. They meet farmers, artists, adventurers. And when they come to the Sonoma coast, they decide to settle down and live happily ever after. According to Jack London, Sonoma Valley was the Native American way of saying happily ever after. But it's unclear just where Jack London picked this up. Most experts claim this statement is untrue. He certainly didn't get it from the Pomo, Wapo, or Miwok peoples. But there used to be so many tribes in the valley. So it could have come from a tribe that was obliterated by the white man. But even so, even if that's the case, it's still not true. It's said that before the white man came, the diverse native peoples of the valley lived in harmony and peace. But today, on the Sonoma coast, there is only acrimony and division. The trouble can be traced back to 1987. This is when the United States Department of Alcohol and Tobacco created a new appellation, the Sonoma Coast AVA. At first, producers big and small welcomed this new appellation. Finally, they had a way to distinguish themselves and compete with Napa. But as the wine market became more and more competitive 
and more and more difficult for the smaller producers to sell their estate wines, fault lines emerged. The battle began in earnest when a few small wineries from the Fort Ross area petitioned for a new appellation, one that would include all the vineyards on the coastal ridges from Casadero to Annapolis. The petitioners met fierce resistance. The larger producers would have no talk of secession, and the Fort Wass winery was appalled at the idea that they might lose control of their brand name. So the campaign quickly fell apart. But a small group of producers refused to accept defeat, and they rebranded themselves anyway as the true Sonoma Coast. They say that the story of the true is the story of America's struggle with nature. In this wild, remote area, the only way to produce wine is to battle the cold, the fog, and the rain. What defines the true is a series of ridgetops close enough to the coast to be cooled by the deep, cold Pacific, yet high enough to bask in brilliant sunshine above the omnipresent summer fog. These conditions make for a very long growing season. Bud break can begin as early as February, and the harvest can linger into October. So it's a fruit that has a haunting perfume and a bright acidity unlike anything else. Unfortunately, I've never been able to try one of these fabled Pinot Noirs or Chardonnays, but I've passed this way so many times now that I can recite the legends and the magazine copy by heart. Of course, once the subdividing began, there was no stopping it. And now the true Sonoma Coast breaks down into three pieces. In the north, the vineyards around the town of Annapolis call themselves the truer Sonoma Coast. And to the south, stretching to the town of Occidental, we have the truest Sonoma Coast. And in the middle, the central region, we have the true, true Sonoma Coast. Here, Around Fort Ross and Seaview Road, one finds the oldest vineyards. But even here, in the true true, there are still divisions. There's a girl who spends her days hiking in the woods behind the Russian Orthodox Church and riding her bike on the Fort Ross Trail that goes to the beach. She is immune to the fighting and undaunted by the tribalism. She makes it a point to say hello to the true, the truer, and the truest alike, even though it drives her mother crazy. Her family owns one of the most famous vineyards of the region. It's also one of the original producers of organic wine. Her grandfather did everything without pesticides or chemicals, not for ethical or environmental reasons, but because he had allergies. This is what gave the family a head start on what would eventually become a popular trend with the rich and the powerful. The vineyard is officially a member of the True True contingent, but only by geography. The girl's father can't stand most of the neighborhood producers and their arguments for subdivisions. He calls them the Nouveau Wine. But her mother thinks brand names are important and proudly tells everyone about their true, true pedigree. This is why her brother left. Before he took off to start his own winery in Washington State, he told her that their mother made it impossible to envision a future that was anything unlike the past. He sent them a case of his first production, a Pinot Noir he gave the name Don't Worry Mama. But the girl's mother still can't bring herself to try it. She cries every time she looks at the bottles. This afternoon, the girl took one of the Don't Worry Mama bottles to the beach, and she drank it while she wrote in her diary. She thought it was okay, but she says she'll do better when she starts making wine. She also likes to draw in her diary. She designs labels for future vintages. And today, she drew one that was quite remarkable. It was a red heart suspended between the ocean and the sun. 
It was a heart that drew power from both the cool water and the warm breeze. She spent hours working on it, and she gave it a name. The True True True. And then she drew a less than sign and a three, making another little heart. Incredible and inspiring. And tonight, in honor of this true, 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 I am going to attempt to make a new batch of my own bread wine. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to unhook my bread machine and climb up the rope to where the hot air burners are. And then I'm going to hold the bread machine over the flames for a few minutes. You see, I've jerry-rigged a siphon using a plastic bottle I've made a siphon that should draw out all the alcohol as the hot air burners heat the bread machine. I just have to go slow because the bottle's not exactly a tight fit. And so if I'm not careful, some of the liquid could spill out. And then I'll end up losing some of my distilled alcohol to the flames. But I'm going to try. If I know one thing, you have to try. This episode of Too Much Information is called Man Without a Country, Part 3. It was written and produced by Benjamin Walker, Bill Bowen, and Laura Mayer, and featured Gene Atwood and Padre Friedman. Special thanks to Glenn Otis Brown, Chris Wade, Ryan Geist, and Eric Klein. There's more information about Fort Awesome and seasteading and Edward Everett Hale's story on the TMI show page. And that's where you can subscribe to the TMI podcast as well. All that and more at WFMU.org.